Hi, I'm Yusuf Zin. My latest TVO Today podcast is on how a Canadian ends up in a Chinese prison, and if he's even alive. Listen and subscribe to Extradition. Available now, wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to This Being Human. I'm your host, Abdurrahman Malik. On this podcast, I talk to extraordinary people from all over the world whose life, ideas, and art are shaped by Muslim culture. My goal was to tell a story to say, yes, there is war, but the war can limit at times how the everyday life is going, but it cannot stop it. Today, Afghan novelist Jamaluddin Aram. The novel Nothing Good Happens in Wazirabad on Wednesday is set in a small town in Afghanistan in the early 1990s. The Soviet occupation has ended and a civil war is going on. While conflict and death lurks in the background, this is not a war novel. It's a darkly hilarious series of stories about mundane human drama in a small town. Interpersonal conflicts, rumors, business dilemmas, and family expectations. The town is populated with rich, vivid characters, like a stubborn old shopkeeper who everyone calls the mule, a crafty young girl who catches scorpions to sell their poison as a drug, and a teacher who lost his mind after reading an infamously difficult book. It's a beautifully written and deeply captivating work, so much so that it's hard to believe it's Jamaluddin Aram's debut novel. Aram grew up near Kabul, but he's currently living in Toronto, which is where I reached him. I love the carpet behind you, Jamaluddin. It's beautiful. Yes, this is uh, when we were younger, we used to make carpets exactly like this. Unfortunately, we were, you know, now that I think about it, I, I say I wish we could have kept one of them. You know, the things that we made, but it was because we were doing it for money. But this one is, you know, it's woven by the same person who taught us how to make carpets. So that's close, I think. That's incredible. I just want to read to you the first line from the acknowledgments of Nothing Good Happens in Wazirabad on, on Wednesday. Um, it really struck me when I read it because it's such a beautiful paragraph but also incredibly emotive. And I had to dig in with you about it. In my family, you write, Jamaluddin, everyone is a better storyteller than I am. I began to write to see if I could tell a story as good as theirs. But I know the competition is stiff and the road ahead is a long one. My father used to drive a truck and his anecdotes were laden with mechanical failures, epic weather calamities, bandits, swindlers, and clowns. My mother was always surrounded by women who emptied out their hearts to her as if she was their therapist first and seamstress second. I am just so taken by your description of your mother and your father 
Tell me a little bit about the kinds of stories you were hearing. And, and more than that, Jamaluddin, how did being with a mother and father like this sort of shape what story meant to you? Yeah, well, I, I've been very fortunate to have been raised in a household with people who are my mom and my dad. They, I think my father dropped out of school when he was grade four to help my grandfather. And my mom never went to school. The way they approached life and the kind of stories that, or the kind of memory that they have, because they couldn't read, I assume, so everything is in their memory mm. of how to listen and how to tell those stories. Or if you take it a step further, how to make sense of their life because they have lived very challenging lives, right? So how do you make sense of that is to tell yourself and retell yourself those stories or those events that happened to you. And then, so that is the family part. But if you take Afghanistan in general, it's a country that is brimming with stories and people I was just writing this um, in an interview with a literary magazine about the oral tradition of storytelling. Mm. And I mentioned that in Afghanistan, here you say, let's grab a coffee and chat, right? Or let's call and chat. But in Afghanistan, that phrase, you say this way, you say, let's grab tea and tell stories, mm. right? Choy bukhurim qisakuni. Qisa is story, right? And... So almost, that is, almost like almost like narratives. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Let's, let's, we use let's, the same uh, word in Urdu, kisse. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So let's let's have tea and tell stories, and then that is everywhere. I remember because there was not any other form of entertainment. So people people who are like men who are younger, uh, who are older than than us, they would just gather somewhere outside and they would sit for hours into the night, and they will say these stories. And those stories were not following any linear path. It was not about one topic, but it was just people sitting there and telling each other stories of, you know, how things were or funny stories or jokes. And I don't think we do that here or we don't have time or we don't have that kind of close-knit communities to, of course, there were no cell phones at that time. So people were not on their cell phones. They would just sit <laughs> and listen while somebody was telling a story. And so this is, you are in a family where your mother and father have been through a lot and they tell stories of how things were. And then you go outside and you see other people tell stories, right? And probably it's, that is not a special thing. To me, probably every Afghan could be a writer, mm -hmm. you know, and tell those stories. It's only that I sit down and write it. Is there a particular story that you remember from your home? Is there a particular tale that that strikes you even today and makes you <laughs> maybe laugh or cry or or have to pause for a second? Something through, you know, the mists of time that continues to kind of, um, yeah, kind of prick at you. There are a lot of those stories, and some of them are so magical. We are a very superstitious mm -hmm. society, right? 
for example, in the title of the book, I mentioned Wednesday, and on Wednesdays, it was widely believed that if you are traveling somewhere, you should not depart on a Wednesday, mm. right? You, you either wait till Thursday or you leave on Tuesday. It's bad omen if you leave on a Wednesday. And so my mom was saying that her uncle was working on the field and one day she sees him walking towards a direction that he wouldn't walk at that time of the day. Mm. And he looks very pale as if something is controlling him. So other people had already noticed this. So they're following him and they see a snake, like a giant snake with its mouth open and it's pulling everything towards it, right? And like swallows, birds, little birds, they're just flying into the snake's mouth. And this man is also going there to be swallowed by the snake and somebody has a gun and shoots and kills the snake wow. and then this man my, my mom's uncle he just drops on the floor as if whatever that was that was pulling him towards it that source is gone wow. so he just faints and falls on the floor now that i think about it that's not reality that is like magic you know you, you only hear <laughs> things in, in fairy tales like that but I fully trust my mother with her stories, and I have no doubt in my mind that that thing happened, that there was a snake that was swallowing everything in its path. And if it was not shot, he would have swallowed my mom's uncle too. One of the things I, I experienced as I've been reading your book is that it's very easy to read. You have the gift of the storyteller because there's a breeziness to it. Yet you're talking about very difficult things, difficult relationships, difficult moments. And also there's the tinge of the absurd that runs throughout throughout the book, which makes me constantly smile. And yet I feel a little bit guilty when I do, because the book is set against the backdrop of a war, but none of the drama is focused on the war. It's just human life. Jamaluddin, tell me what you were thinking as you crafted this amazing narrative. Thank you. That uh, it means a lot to me. So the whole idea behind writing the book was that we often hear about the war. A lot has been written about the war in Afghanistan, the anatomy of it, who was fighting who, and how it has changed the region, how it has impacted the world, 9-11 and all of that. But we rarely hear about the day-to-day -day life of people, right? So when there is a war, for example, it's very unfortunate that there is always a war. You look at when the war was going on in Syria or now in Ukraine, you look from the outside because of the, the screen and because of the way the narratives have been 
shaped, your immediate reaction is that there is no ordinary life going on in these cities at war. Mm. So my goal was to, because I lived through a civil war, to tell a story to say, yes, there is war, but the war can limit at times how the everyday life is going, but it cannot stop it. And in this book, everything that you, th th this community of people, they just go about their everyday life because there's no alternative to it. If you're hungry, you can't just sit and wait for the war to end, right? You have to eat. So people have to work, get food. If you're sick and in pain, whether that is a wound or you've dislocated your shoulder, you're not going to sit and wait for the war to end. You have to find a way to relieve this pain, right? And of course, you know, the human heart craves for affection and love. And you cannot wait for the war to end so that you can fall in love, mm. right? These simple human emotions and sentiments, they're older, more ancient than any war. When the wars end, people will deal with the same things. They have to eat. They have to stay healthy if they are sick. They have to seek help. They fall in love. They get their heart broken. At war or not, these things are happening. So what I did or tried to do in this book is to kind of shift the focus from the war into the everyday life. Mm. And it's a beautiful, it's a beautiful thing when people dedicate themselves to live as fully as possible where there is a bigger threat lingering around. Mm. There's also this sense, Jamaluddin, of some of your characters being so present in their moment. There's a scene towards the beginning of the book where gunfire breaks out. And one of the protagonists, Aziz, is really worried, not because of the gunfire, but because his mom has sent him out to borrow salt from his auntie. He's afraid if he fails in his mission, his mom is going to beat him. And then there's another character who, you know, as mayhem begins to ensue, doesn't want to put down his tea. I feel a lot of resonance to that. You know, I, I feel like, you know, when things start going a little crazy in the house and I got tea or coffee in my hand, I'm like, oh address craziness, put down coffee, not sure. But this character doesn't want to put down his tea. It's the only gunfire in the book, actually, I feel. And it's treated as an inconvenience more than a shock. And these scenes are, are really funny as well. And, and I, I'm left wondering, how much of this is reflecting your own experiences? That scene actually happened, and I was there. I oh. don't know... Oh my why I was there. Okay. But I was there. I think I heard the gunshots and then I just followed the sound where it was. And I, now that I think about it, I say that's very dangerous. You hear the gunshots, you run away. But at that time, when you're that young, everything is very intriguing. So it, that, that sound pulled me in and I was just going and until I... I went where the fighting was happening and why probably it stayed with me that memory was because I saw our neighbors. Mm. There was a family living right across from our house and his oldest son was 
in the trench and firing a gun, mm. right? So it was very like I had seen this person around for years mm. and then now I see him firing a gun, right? So it was probably that sense of familiarity took the danger out of the situation. So I'm not seeing a man firing a gun. I'm seeing my neighbor firing a gun. Those are two very different things, mm. right? And I was not alone. There were other people too. It's humans in danger. We have a very interesting relationship. Mm. Tell me about that, Jamaldin. Our mind doesn't process danger as, oh, I'll get hurt, mm. right? It's more intriguing. It's, we are very curious beings. You hear a sound and it, it could be the sound of gunshots or you know, missiles and rockets fired, and your curiosity takes the better of you, and you want to know what was it, where did it happen. Mm. I remember during the war and after the war, and even unfortunately five, six years ago, there would be an explosion, and people would run on top of their rooftops to see where it was, mm. you know? And it, that is something that has stayed it's part of our nature, and I don't think it will go away. Mm -hmm. If you're in situations like that, you realize how curious beings we are. Mm. There's a character in the book, Malam. He's the calligraphy teacher. And you write in the narrative that he reads an infamous book called The Mother of Books. And you write in the novel, you either beat the book or the book beats you. And in his case, the book beats him. And everyone thinks he's lost his mind and he goes around saying the most blasphemous things. So my question that came to me was, Jamaluddin Aram, <laughs> did you beat the books or did the books beat you? And when did you realize that you were in love with not just reading and stories, but that you were in love with writing and literature, and that's what you had to do? Well, that is a very, very good question. The first part, the story of Malim and the book that he read, that is actually a true story. A true story in the sense that that, that book, growing up, I kept hearing my parents, my father and his friends talk about this book, right? And it was called The Mother of Books. Mm -hmm. And it, I think it was a religious text that nobody, I didn't see it then, I haven't seen a copy of it, but it was very much alive in the stories that there is this book that exists, that it's very hard to read mm -hmm. and you should be of a certain knowledge of religion and of life to be able to attempt reading this book. Even then, the book is so powerful mm. that you might lose your mind, Wow! right? And they were just telling about this one person who had written a lot of books, and he was an older man too, and he read The Mother of Books, mm. and he lost his, his mind. So that was always an example, like you shouldn't even if you got the chance, you found the book, don't open it, don't read it, because there's a chance you might lose your mind. So that was, I kind of draw upon that memory in this book. The second part of your 
question, when did I become interested in writing? For the longest time, growing up as a kid, I wanted to become an actor mm -hmm. for film. And I never thought of writing, not until late. I think it was in 2004 that I wrote my first short story in Farsi. But then I wrote, I think between 2004 and 2016, when I started thinking about writing seriously, I think I produced three short stories and a handful of three-verse poetry. And then I left that kind of storytelling, went into film, filmmaking, documentary filmmaking, thinking it might open a door for me to get into acting. But anybody who's interested in acting, you tell the story, they say that's a very, very long shot to go into documentary filmmaking to become an actor. <laughs> and they're right. I never became an actor because it didn't open any doors. <laughs> but I, you know, made two do short documentary films. I worked on a number of projects. And one of the films that I worked on is called Buskashi Boys. It was nominated for an Academy Award in 2012. But when I was at Union College, I think it was during my third year, that I took a creative writing course mm. and I was doing just the coursework, writing short stories. I was thinking of becoming a journalist and I, I have a friend who studied English literature. He studied English and history and became a journalist. He's a beautiful writer. So I was kind of following his path to journalism. And then that creative writing course at Union, I took... And I said, oh, I, I really, really like writing. And that's when I, I started dedicating more time to writing. The first chapter of this book, I wrote this in 2016. Wow. And it came out in Numero Sank magazine. So that was my first piece of work written in English and published outside Afghanistan. Wow. And then after that, uh, I started, you know, spending more time writing and thinking that this is something that I really like and I want to keep writing. What was it like learning to write in your second language? I think now in, in retrospect, what I really liked, I think it was above all the challenge mm -hmm. of writing. I write very, very slowly. So for me, composing every sentence is a process. No matter how short the sentence is, for me it's a process to try to get it right in the first place, to communicate what I want to communicate through that sentence. And then once that is done, now I go back how to make that sentence sound better. Mm. You know? So if I wrote in Farsi, I probably wouldn't have that kind of challenge because that language is in me, it's in my blood, right? I probably would have breezed through it, but with English, there are so many different layers to peel mm. to get to saying something, say it accurately, precisely, and beautifully. Mm. And that is something that I finished this book and I'm writing, I'm working on a new project and I'm very, very happy that that challenge has not lost its freshness. It's as fresh as it was when I first started writing in English. 
I love that. I love I, I, I love the way you embrace the difficulty of the of the craft. There's something so remarkable about that process. It's the hard work of it. It's the graft of it. And yet, as a reader, it's the way that I effortlessly move through the prose that I think is a sign of how much you've worked on it. Thank you very much. I, I, it makes me very glad to hear that. I think it was Hemingway when he wrote The Old Man in the Sea, and he mentioned somewhere that he worked his whole life mm-hmm. to arrive or achieve a simplicity of language and prose with which to write The Old Man in the Sea. Mm. You know, and I think anything that you read and and it reads easily, but there is some depth and and substance to it, both in terms of the musicality of the language and also what the words are conveying in terms of themes and meaning. It means that whoever wrote it, they spend a lot of time making it in a way that it reads easily, but there's a lot of hard work went into it to make it seamless right and so it's a very big compliment to hear that from you no i, I, really I appreciate it it really does come from from an experience with with your words do you still dream do you still dream in farsi i do and i hope it doesn't change mm. i've left afghanistan in 2013 i've been back a few times but every time i dream 95 or even more percent of those dreams take place in Afghanistan, in Kabul, in the neighborhood that I grew up as a, as a child. And they all are in Farsi. Wow. And I sometimes think that I would never be able to dream of any other place or go into other places in my dreams. Because every time I close my eyes, I'm back in Afghanistan. It also kind of begs a question for me about translation, not just translation of language, right? But translation of experience and, and memory. And, you know, this alchemy that a writer does by taking the things that are so deeply personal, that interior space, the insight, so to speak, that interior gaze that a writer has, and then bring those stories forth But there's two moments in the book which really caught me. In one moment in the book, you show us a piece of calligraphy that one of the characters has penned. It's beautiful, the calligraphy. And then there's a place further on where there's a page from an ancient text that is referred to, and you actually print it, but neither of them are translated. And I thought that was a beautiful... That was a beautiful sort of moment of, I, I would say, Jamaluddin of confidence. Can you tell us something about those untranslated pages in your book? There were two reasons that I did that. One reason was that Seema, one of the characters in the book, she's doing calligraphy. Calligraphy is a form of art that needs to be seen. Mm. You cannot talk about it you have to see to be able to appreciate that art and that craft. So that was one reason. The other reason is that I wanted to, in a way, acknowledge and pay tribute to Afghan artists that are doing a wonderful job and I really appreciate their art. One of them 
is Ibrahim Amini. He's a poet from Afghanistan. And that page that you just mentioned, that is two lines from one of his poems that I really like. I've been reading Amini's poetry for a very long time. So I wanted to include his poem in this book to pay tribute to him. And the person who did the calligraphy, he's a master calligrapher from Afghanistan, Ali Baba Aurang, which I also thank him. So that is that part. And also that page later on in the book, that is from Hafiz's collection. I admire and really like reading Hafiz. So it's in a way me including people and text that means something to me in the book. The other thing is that as much as I wrote this book for people who are not from Afghanistan, because this is in English, but there are, in a way, I put things in the book that only an Afghan can read, and they say, oh, I know that. You know, there are phrases in the book that I put, and I don't translate those phrases either. The reader I hope that they have the patience to read and kind of grasp the meaning from the context because I'm not, you know, translating every phrase. And those are those small little details that I put so that an Afghan, when they read, they hear that, that Persian Farsi term or phrase in their head and they say, oh yeah, that is how I, we talk. I, 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 I get that. Jamal as we as we start to wrap up, it's your, you, you approach both your work and life with a kind of a a calm generosity, which I really appreciate and really, really feel. You know, I, I, I'm always interested in this kind of, and you mentioned it before, about the place the writer occupies between the natural and the supernatural. And I think so much of the poetry of the places that we come from, of the poetry of Afghanistan and of Rumi, they are words that are imbued with spirit. And I wonder how you as a writer navigate that world, the spiritual world. You mentioned Rumi, and in one of Rumi's poems, he says, Lomakon is the nowhere if I can attempt to translate that please, line of, of, of Rumi, he says, you are the king of nowhere. Don't isolate and limit yourself to a place, right? And I think the world of the spirituality, the, the spiritual world, first and foremost, I think it is we are seeking something that we will never find, but in the process of the search, we are finding a place where we belong. And in Afghanistan, you can see people are reading poetry, people are telling stories to each other, people are gossiping and spreading rumors, and all of that is a search for the truth, mm. right? And some people just go to the mosque to pray, and some people go to the mosque to steal. All of these things, we are very restless and we are searching for something. And I think the more we are open to the search, the better off we are as individuals and also as societies in general. Jabaluddin, tell me about 
a recent joy or a recent meanness that came to you as an unexpected visitor? This visitor is a new awareness for me. And I've been thinking more consciously about it, and in the past couple of days in particular, that we are individuals, but we are also living in a society, in a time where everybody is thinking about themselves, right? The new awareness that I have is, if we can take a moment each day, or if, if that's too overwhelming, take a moment each week and ask yourself the question, what have I done something for other people? What have I done something for the place, the community where I live? What have I done something for the animals that lives around us, be it birds or, or dogs or cats? What have I done something, not for myself, but for other people, right? And if we do that, I think the world that we are living in will be a much, much better place. Your book has all kinds of beautiful little things that you truly make amazing. It's been such a pleasure and a privilege to be able to spend this time with you. Thank you so much for being on This Being Human. Same here. Thank you for having me. Jamaluddin Aram's new book is called Nothing Good Happens in Wazirabad on Wednesday. My recommendation, go buy it now. This Being Human is produced by Antica Productions in partnership with TVO. Our senior producer is Kevin Sexton. Our associate producer is Haley Choi. Our executive producer is Laura Regeer. Stuart Cox is the president of Antica Productions. Mixing and sound design by Phil Wilson. Our associate audio editor is Cameron McIver. Original music by Boombox Sound. Shagoyeg Tajvidi is TVO's managing editor of digital video and podcasts. Laurie Few is the executive for digital at TVO. This Being Human is generously supported by the Aga Khan Museum. Through the arts, the Aga Khan Museum sparks wonder, curiosity, and understanding of Muslim cultures and their connection with other cultures. The museum wishes to thank the Hillary and Galen Weston Foundation for their generous support of This Being Human.